Welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves. And I'm Don Bishop. We're your hosts for Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Ken Hanley, and he'll be answering your most important questions on fly fishing California's inshore. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Ken a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com. Click on the link below the description of the show that says click here to ask Ken your most important question. We'll receive your questions immediately, and we'll be trying to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 12 hours after the show ends. If you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the broadcast at any time. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this show cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with Ken Hanley about how he fishes California's incredible coastline. New from the Winston Rod Company for 2007, Boron 2T Rods, new technology, traditional feel. This series combines the feel of our traditional action rods with the lightness and responsiveness of our latest technology. These rods offer the ultimate in delicate presentation while still retaining a good measure of power and reserve thanks to the dynamic properties of our Boron 2 technology. These four-piece rods are available in three through five weight and retail for $625. They are designed and crafted in the Winston shop in Twin Bridges, Montana, and feature the traditional Winston green finish and Winston unconditional lifetime warranty. Cast the new Boron 2T at the best place possible, your local specialty fly shop. Well, before we introduce Ken, we'd like to let you know about the great gifts we have to give away tonight. Uh, for our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a copy of Ken's book, Fly Fishing the Pacific Inshore, published by Lions Press, and a three-year membership to the Federation of Fly Fishers. So you have two chances to win tonight. So stick with us and uh, see if you win. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage on askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Ken's section that says, Click here to register for our drawing. Just click on that link, fill out the form, and then you'll be registered for tonight's drawing. We'll announce the winners at the end of the show. Well, our guest tonight is Ken Hanley. Ken is an acknowledged expert on Pacific Coast fly fishing, and he has authored several books and DVDs on this subject. But his experience goes far beyond the Pacific surf zone. Ken has traveled from the Himalayan peaks to remote wilderness areas around the globe. His books also deal with freshwater topics, and his newest, Fly Fishing California, a no-nonsense guide to top waters, will be released in April. Information sharing is Ken's forte. He's an accomplished and innovative fly tire and a highly regarded contributor to the fly fishing publications and venues around the country. He guides in California waters in Baja, and his surf zone clinics up and down the West Coast and Alaska are the reason for many anglers' success. His book, Fly Fishing the Pacific Inshore, is particularly pertinent tonight to tonight's discussion. Ken has conducted fishing and adventure programs since 1970, and over 14,000 students have benefited from his expertise. When Roger and I first saw Ken give a presentation on fly fishing Baja, 
it was very easy for us to see how one could learn a ton from him and have a ball doing it. In fact, if they ever considered a new career, I think Ken and his partner Jay Murakoshi might consider stand-up comedy. Uh, Ken was the 2005 inductee into the Northern California Council of the Federation of Fly Fishers Fly Fishing Hall of Fame. That was for his contributions to the sport and his award-winning instructional programs. His website, PacificExtremes.com, shows more about his ventures and appearances than we have time to mention tonight. Suffice it to say, you don't ever want to miss an opportunity to see Ken Hanley in person. Ken, we know you're always on the move. Thanks so much for joining us on Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio tonight. Uh, yeah, I'd like to take a order here for large pizza, and can you supersize the drink for me? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, did I get the right number? Oh, no, wrong number, wrong number. <laughs> hey, guys, how you doing? We're doing great. Are you ready to talk about fishing? Yeah, let's take a tour. Okay. Well, folks, uh, just to give you a, an idea of what we're going to try to cover tonight, because it is a, a rather large subject, a lot of information. But, and a lot uh, of questions. Yeah, and thank you, everyone, for, for sending in those questions. We, we really appreciate your input. So here's kind of the way we've lined this out so you know what to expect tonight. We're going to be talking about tides since that's uh, uh, the, one of the biggest parts of fly fishing in, in saltwater. Uh, we're going to talk to you about equipment and flies used on the coastal waters. And then we're going to break down the coastal waters into the different types of fisheries, such as estuaries, beaches, and then bays. And after that, we'll close out by addressing a lot of your, your site-specific questions. So you've got to stick to the end to find out those answers. And uh, where, we t where you've asked about specific areas along the coast or where you might go uh, in, a, in an area. So we'll address those at the end. So we've got lots to cover. We better get started quickly. Uh, so number one then, Ken, um, let's, can you just enlighten us about how tides work and how they affect our fishing and, and will affect our fishing? Well, this is a great way to start the show, Roger, because tides are really the one unique thing that really takes the freshwater world and makes it completely different from this saltwater experience. Uh, tides drive access, and that may be access to getting on or off a beach. It might be access to getting in and out of an estuary or around uh, some type of obstacles out off the coastline. It might also be access to what type of species are running into specific habitats. So, you know, tides really dictate what I do for a living. Uh, the best way to think about it is that, of course, we know it's basically an impact from the moon. But what we want to break it down to is four different times in the month. And the first is going to be in that new moon phase, that dark moon. Uh, at that time, there's a very strong pull, a strong influence on the tides. So that's what we call one of the spring tides. And if you think of springs, it's nothing to do with the season but it's everything to do with expanding and contracting, just like a spring would, a, a spring mechanism. So at that time of the, the new moon, you're having an extreme exchange in volume of water from high, high tide to low, low tide. And that might be good, you know, if you're on a very flat beach, for example, and you need to wait for a few hours of a flooding tide to uh, – to settle in and give you a nice thick water column to work in, 
you know, maybe during a spring tide, that's going to happen a little bit quicker in the day, and you're certainly going to have a larger water column to work with at the second half of that tide. Um, I mean, that's one example. Uh, another example might be what you're going to do in terms of the estuary. On a really high flooding tide, fish are going to be driven far back into smaller estuary creeks. They're going to be under cover. The bait fish is going to be driven farther back, and you want to be positioned in those areas early, early in the day so that you can take advantage of that incoming tide. Um, the second type of tide phase is called a neap tide, and that's based on the quarter moons, or essentially every other week from the new moon and the full moon. And during those neap tides, basically you've got the least amount of water exchanging between high, high, and low, low. So at that time, that might be a good choice if you're fishing around, let's say, a very steep profiled beach. You don't want to be ripped off the beach. You don't want the bait fish being ripped off the beach. So you wait for a neap tide week where things settle in a little bit more on that steep profile. It's a calmer water column. And you've got the bait fish there and the game fish and hopefully more control of your tackle. But uh, the one thing that you can be sure of is that when you work with tides, they don't stick around. And I think that's another thing that freshwater anglers need to come to grips with, that this is a very, um, no pun intended, but a very fluid environment. <laughs> so you only have specific conditions for a half hour to an hour maybe, and then things change again. So being able to read those tide charts and tide tables, that's probably the first skill that I think people would uh, want to spend some time developing. Well, Ken, the, the tides generally run on about a 25-hour cycle. Is that approximately correct? That's about right, Gone. Yeah. yeah. And, and where, where does one find locally what the tides are going to be doing? How do, how do the anglers who are new to an area find out? Oh, gosh. You know what, man? We're on one of those resources right now, the Internet. Um, you know, unlike when you and I were a kid, we didn't have this option. But uh, the Internet is great. It doesn't matter where you are in the States. If you're going to be a traveling angler, you could do your research ahead of time before you, you travel out to the coast side states. And you'd know from the charts uh, that are listed in this Internet environment not only the numbers of the cycle, but you get visuals of the cycle as well. So it's very easy to quickly make a distinction between an extreme tide or a mild tide, a fast-moving tide, or a slow tide. So that's, that's the first thing we want to do, clue people into the Internet. The second thing is anybody that's moving along the coast states, uh, one of your best resources is the local newspapers. The cities or towns that are right out in the coastal environs, their newspapers usually list daily the tide cycles, mm -hmm. and that's a great resource. The third resource is, of course, going to be pro shops, going into angling stores, boating stores, dive shops. They've all got the tides either listed on the wall or they've got the, uh, the tide books that are available for free most of the time. Now, Ken, what about uh, changes in the weather, uh, barometric pressure, that kind of thing? Do those affect tides, or do they compound the, the issue of tides? Roger, you're letting the gorilla out of the cage <laughs> early, buddy. That's the tough one. 
that is really the difficult one to estimate. Um, there is absolutely no question that the front coming in is going to change the swell and the impact on that tide, or the barometer rising and things leveling off is going to change that tide as well. So first of all, tide charts are just predictions. That's all they are. They give us an idea of what might be taking place. The only way to really know what's taking place is to go stand out in it. You know, the best weatherman is the guy who's standing in it, and he says it's not raining anymore because his shoulders are dry. And it's the same thing for anglers. You get an idea ahead of time what might be a good day, and then you go out and you stand in it. Uh, the biggest impacts from weather are when you get a very quick exchange in the barometer. It doesn't matter if it's rising or dropping. If it's a quick exchange, you tend to have major impact on the tide. And it usually means, uh, in many ways, a negative impact on the tide. You know, more wind, more swell, more chop. One other thing that I, I thought maybe we should talk about, too, is a little safety with tides. Because I, I don't know about California, and maybe, maybe it applies in some of the estuaries there, but, but I remember fishing in uh, the mouth of a river up in Cook Inlet in Alaska where the tide was coming in and it felt like a, you know, the Bighorn River hitting me <laughs> in the thighs. And I guess there's, there's actually up there some duck hunters and, and fishermen that have actually died because they were stuck in the mud while the tide was coming in. Absolutely. Absolutely. Dynamic in capital letters. That's the one thing that you have to know about the tide cycle. It is absolutely dynamic. You can't stop it. You can't control it. All you could do is hopefully control the effects of it on you. So, uh, again, be smart. You know, don't rush out into something. Usually I'm going to watch what's happening before I walk onto the beach or I'm going to watch what's happening from the parking lot before I walk down into the estuary. Try to get a timing for how fast the water is moving, how quick it's rising. But uh, one of the safety factors with the tides is as long as you stay put in one section, you know you're going to become a scour tool. You become the piling of the bridge. Hmm. And anybody that's looked at pilings knows that there's those huge scour holes around them based on whether it's an incoming or outgoing tide. Usually both sides of that pole has a pretty deep hole, and that's because of the back eddies coming off of that. Well, you are yourself a pole. So I try not to anchor myself too long. I try to stay just a few minutes, and then I move. Um, now, this is going to sound like we're talking down to people that are listening on the show, and I apologize. I certainly don't want that to be the case, but um, people think that with every wave that comes into the shore or drives past the mouth of that river and moves upriver, they think that that's what is rising the tide. And that's not the case. You know, the tide rises in increments. And I'm just going to make simple math for a simple mind, and that simple mind is my mind. But let's say every 15 minutes or so you get what's called a surge on the tide. And all of a sudden it feels a little stronger than it had the previous few minutes. And you notice that the water is a little bit quicker and a little bit deeper. And that's where the rise on the tide cycle has just established 
a new level. So it's not every wave that brings in a new height or a new, you know, uh, an adjustment on the height. It's every 15 minutes or 20 minutes or so where you see the real adjustments on the tide. And that's important to keep in mind. Anytime I feel a pressure difference against my legs or all of a sudden it seems like out of nowhere I get a little extra push and it's no longer up on my thighs but maybe right around my, my sternum, um, that's when I start to uh, stop for a second and reevaluate and maybe even start backing up a little bit. So that's, that's a great tip for safety. Well, Ken, we've got a question here uh, in terms of how the tides affect the fish, and it sounds like from what you've said before, it may be that the main effect is where the, the predator fish position themselves to take advantage of the tide in reference to the bait fish. Yeah, Don, I think that's a, a, good, a good visual or mind's eye picture there um, because the predators are definitely repositioning themselves throughout an entire tide cycle. Now, part of that's going to be for access, and we mentioned that. You know, maybe the, uh, the back of the estuary was dry, and they had to wait three hours before they could get back up onto those shell bed flats or something. Um, but if they're uh, under a bridge near a piling, they may be positioned on one side of that piling on an outgoing tide and swing just 180 degrees to the other side of the piling on an incoming tide. Um, they definitely take advantage of uh, that conveyor belt, if you want to think of it in those terms. Um, you know, the, the tide is going to change oxygen levels and salinity levels, and definitely it's going to move around debris. I mean, even more importantly, it's going to move around food items. And when that food chain gets kicked in, that's when the predators start to... Uh, to really do their thing. Um, I'll give you another great tip. Uh, in the West Coast, it is almost rare that if you have a non-moving tide cycle, extreme peak high or extreme peak low, there's about a 50 minutes there or so where the water doesn't move very much. It is very rare where that's going to be the best bite. So we're always looking for some fashion of moving water because that tends to increase the predator-prey relationships. Okay. Sounds good. I, I do have a question in terms of is the influence of the tides any greater on the East Coast or the West Coast, or are they pretty similar for folks who've had an opportunity maybe to fish on the East Coast? I think it's about the same. Okay. Um, I think it's more of an issue of the type of shoreline that you've got, the profile, the profile meaning how steep or how shallow, but also what type of cover. If you've got hard rock structure or if you're on a mud flat or a white sand beach or, you know, a grass bed, kelp forest, that type of a thing. Um, but I think that's more important than the tide itself is the actual physicality of, of the, uh, the shoreline. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, let's take a, just a real brief break. When we return, we'll be talking more with Ken Hanley, and he'll be telling us about the equipment he uses to fish some of those coastal waters in California. The Federation of Fly Fishers needs your support. 
Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. It is involved in the mangrove recovery initiative in Florida, in the Trout of the Desert Southwest initiative to help the recovery of rare native trout, the Endangered Fisheries Initiative, and helped with the Striped Bass Game Fish 2006 Symposium in Foxborough, Massachusetts last year, just to name a few. The Federation won a National Conservation Award for its efforts. To continue this great work on behalf of all fly fishers, the Federation needs to increase its membership. It needs more concerned anglers willing to join in and to support uh, such projects, and by doing so, give something back to the sport that has given so much to each of us. Join the Federation of Fly Fishers today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to the Federation website at www.fedflyfishers.org. That's www.fedflyfishers.org. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Ken Hanley about fishing California's inshore. If you'd like to ask Ken a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com. Click on the link below the description of the show where it says click here to ask Ken your most important question. We'll receive these questions promptly, and we'll be trying to answer as many as possible on the show tonight. Uh, Ken, before we get into equipment, uh, tell me uh, what kind of projects you might have uh, planned. I know you've got a, a new book uh, that's almost out. And uh, are you, you've got a lot of appearances, it looked like, on your website. <laughs> yeah, it's like a carny show. Um, actually, this weekend coming up, I'll be doing a, a home show. So I, I get to stick around the Bay Area here for another week. Uh, so I'll be doing a fly fishing show on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Um, and then I move down uh, the following week to do another show down in the Los Angeles area. Um, you mentioned the, the new book, Don, and that's, that's been pretty cool. It's been a lot of years in the making and is basically an expansion from an older title that I had right. where we went back after the book sold out and was off the shelves for about four years, and, and we took a look at things, and when we said, okay, we could do an upgrade here. Um, you know, maybe the techniques are, are better that I've, I've learned or uh, – Things change in terms of the roads and access to properties and whatnot. So we did an upgrade of the uh, the Northern California book, but then we also expanded out into the rest of the state. And I had uh, a group of colleagues that I admire a lot that I had uh, called up and said, hey, guys, I'd like you to really be a part of this project. So this was a nice real team effort. Mm -hmm. And um, this new project has something like 70 waters, I believe, throughout mm -hmm. all of California. And then I'm in the well, I've other seen other some of the proofs, and boy, I'll tell you, the maps that you've got in that are so different than you commonly see. Uh, I really congratulate you on those because it's going to be a real big help with, to the oh. anglers. Oh, that's great, and I really appreciate that. Uh, Pete Chadwell is the artist, and he and I have worked together uh, on doing things up out of the Pacific Northwest. In fact, he's the artist in uh, Northwest and Southwest uh, fly fishing magazines, and he is also the artist for the no-nonsense guides, and mm -hmm. as you can attest, I mean, he just does really beautiful, simplistic work. Uh, it, it's not complicated to see what all the nuggets of, of uh, wisdom are right on that one page. Sure. Tell us, uh, tell everybody your website. The website is pacificextremes.com, and uh, on the website, that'll give folks an idea on how they can 
stay in touch with me throughout the year, um, the show appearances or pro shops or club appearances. Um, it'll also give them an idea as to where some of my work will be appearing. Uh, the magazines that are currently coming out um, are Fly Fisherman Magazine on the next uh, issue, in fact, has a, a feature piece that I just did on the California Delta. And uh, Saltwater Fly Fishing Magazine has a feature piece, I believe it's coming out in the next issue or two, on uh, West Coast tuna. So uh, the website will keep people abreast of yep. what's going on. But they can also hot link to me um, and uh, through emails. It's always an open, uh, you know, open invitation. You know, ask away, and they just might get answers. <laughs> yep. Well, it's a it's a fine website, and also I'd encourage people to uh, check on uh, Ken's bio page on our website. Uh, they actually have an opportunity to look at uh, at the, the various books that Ken has authored. Uh, so you might want to check those out. And, and these are, are fantastic uh, references. Well, Ken, let's let's move on into the equipment field. Uh, we've had uh, uh, several folks uh, inquiring about the, uh, the saltwater equipment. And maybe first you could just tell us a little bit how saltwater differs from freshwater. We've got probably more freshwater anglers in our crowd at this point in time. So maybe you could tell them the difference. Okay. Well, I think, um, of course, the difference is going to be first the habitat impact on your equipment. Um, certainly, you're going to need to take care of it. The salt water environment can be brutal, uh, but I just simply wash things down each day. I don't take them apart. I just uh, put them in the shower. I don't put a lot of pressure on the equipment, just a nice light mist, a little bit warm water, and, uh, and just rinse things out. Uh, and, it, and it can be as simple as that. If you're diligent about it, every time you go out, I've had equipment last decades. Um, sometimes things get abused. You take a tumble in the sand or the mud. You have to pull that reel apart. And at that point, um, I would not wash it out in the salt water. I see that happen a lot with my students that might get knocked down in the surf zone in a clinic, and they want to take the reel apart and dunk it into the surf itself. And what I try to do is bring a bottle of fresh water when I go out onto the beaches, not so much for me to drink, but it's a way for me to wash out my tackle in an emergency if I needed to. So there's a, a good tip there. or to have a, a great tip. Yeah. It's something very simple. It's there as a first aid for you as well, but uh, first aid for your equipment. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is just have a nice rag. You know, you can pour the water into the rag. You can wipe things down. And, again, you're just sort of minimizing the effect of the salt water. But the other thing that's important out there is there's other abrasives you know, sand and coral, uh, not, not so much coral uh, in the California region, but certainly in other areas around the planet. And, you know, that's highly abrasive stuff. So you want to be able to just sort of wipe that off. And, and again, low pressure is the key here because the more pressure you use, uh, whether you're wiping things down or whether you're washing things down, pressure tends to drive those little particles into places mm -hmm. you can't imagine on that reel or on the reel seat on the rod or into the guides if there's a crack in the wrap or whatever. Now, Ken, do you um, actually take all the line off the reel at the end of the day to, to fully wash that, or do you just leave the, the line on the reel? I just leave it on. Um, okay. Usually I'm only fishing with maybe 60 to 100 feet of line anyway, so I don't need to take off the line and a whole lot of backing. Um, again, I just sort of 
uh, I soak it sometimes. If I know I've really given a lot of line out, maybe there's a, a fish that, you know, you get those fish every so often that just take you on the spool and they just go. And, uh, you know, part of me doesn't even want to slow them up. I just want to see how far they could take it. But, um, you know, on those days, that's when I put the reel in a fresh water uh, little bucket and just soak it. And that works just fine um, sometimes. Uh, in fact, rarely. Um, I'll take the line off and, and have to dry it out. But uh, that's usually if I've gone for a week or so on a on a big excursion like down to Mexico or something and we've really abused the reels down there. And then it's a good idea to come back and take it off the spool and wash it and dry it out. Now, when we're talking about a lot of different types of fishing tonight. And can you give us kind of an overview of the types of rods that a person might need and where the crossover from fresh to, to salt might be on those rods? Sure. I think the rod range that will allow you to do anything we're talking about is 7 through 9 weight. Now, I know a lot of my students and a lot of folks out there prefer to go as light as possible. Um, I even have one student that over the years has his heavy rod is a three weight. And huh. He's fishing a double oct right now for his lightweight rod. Um, but he's put in his time. He's learned what to do with that equipment, and he also knows the limitations of it. Even though he's sort of pushing the envelope a little bit, um, he stays within the range of that equipment, and he does just fine. But it's usually for, you know, short cast, small habitat, small hydraulics, and fairly small game fish. Um, if you work in the 7, 8, or 9 weight range, there's nothing that can say, from habitat anyway, you can't be out there giving it a shot. The 7, 8, and 9 weight, that has enough guts to cast into the wind. It has enough guts to move line against heavy current. It has enough guts to start to maneuver the heavy weight of not just a game fish, but, heck, you might get hung up on 35 pounds of kelp going from San Francisco to San Diego. Mm -hmm. And you need to, you know, could you imagine, Roger, you're hooked up on 30 pounds of kelp and you got a two-weight. Go ahead and try and break that off. Oh, it's, yeah. pretty, it's actually pretty hard to break a light tippet on a noodle rod because the noodle rod is so soft. So you're actually going to spend a lot of time trying to get that fly back or land that, that kelp patty. You know, seven, eight, or nine weight, you can break that tippet and then just re-rig and go on. But um, I think the other thing that's important about that seven through nine weight range, it doesn't limit the type of lines that I could work with. It does not limit the type of flies that I can throw so I can work with more of the food chain, and it definitely does not limit the things that I could do with the line once it's in the water. Um, here's a very good example. If I need to do a roll cast pickup before I start to false cast and represent the fly, a roll cast pickup with a 7, 8, or a 9 weight is infinitely quicker to attain and cleaner to attain than if I had that three weight, four weight, or a five weight in my hand. So it becomes a timing issue often. And that's something else that we could actually go back on with the tide issue as well. You know, nothing waits for you and I. 
things move quickly in the saltwater. And so if I have tackle that allows me to adapt quickly, I just feel like I'm more confident and I stay, on, I stay in the game more. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like in your book, Ken, that, uh, that you use the weather, particularly the wind, and the species of fish that you're targeting uh, as perhaps much as anything in your selection of the weight of outfit you'll use. Yes, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, my favorite sticks now are the seven and eight weights because today's rods, are they're just so much stronger in those line classes than they used to be. Um, if you had uh, taken a look at the copy of the um, Fly Fish in a Foot in the Surf Zone, that smaller book that I had done, mm-hmm. gosh, I don't know how long ago, that's an oldie but goldie. But um, in that book I say I think the, the one weight class to do the inshore along the Pacific would be a nine weight. Um, and I still believe that. I think a nine weight's a good purchase, but it's probably more than what people want on most days. But mm-hmm. it certainly allows you to go from Mexico to Alaska and handle everything in the estuaries, the beaches, or just uh, right in the near shore environs. But that seven and eight weight line class right now, gosh, that's that's just a spectacular line class. Yeah. Well, now that book uh, came out in '94. Was that before fiberglass? Oh, look at you. <laughs> what, uh, gee, gee, I can't hear you. You're busting up. Oh, uh, yeah, right. Listen, I have a, I have a question. Yeah, don't make him hang up on us, Don. Yeah, you know? yeah right. <laughs> hey, I didn't I, get that supersized drink. Is this the right number? <laughs> <laughs> I have a question we're, we're here that says uh, we're, we're seeing beach rods, fly rods, and, of course, the two-handed uh, casting outfits, the spay rods. Yes. Do those have an application, or are they something that you use or don't use? Um, my, my approach is still single-handed. I'm comfortable with that. I think single-handed gets the job done. However, having said that, I've also been exploring what the two-hand outfits can do for us on the West Coast. And I think it might be a little bit different than, um, than people would expect. Where I see the advantage of a two-handed rod isn't necessarily standing in the beach in the middle of the rolling surf. Where I see it is off of the jetty walls, casting out into the mouths of the harbors. And when that tide floods up along that jetty wall, it's just like being in a river. And you can almost spay cast. Um, now, but you know what, Don? You're asking a great question here because there's a difference between a spay rod and other two-hand rod designs, and I don't think spay rods are a good choice uh, in the California environment. They're too soft, too slow, mm-hmm. hard to get the lines to work in that environment. Um, if you go with the two-handed rods that are designed for overhead casting, um, a lot of the Scandinavian designs were that way, um, but also a lot of the Pacific Northwest rods are starting to uh, take advantage of the overhead casting tapers. Those rods definitely get you somewhere. You know, they can get a little bit of extra distance out there. Um, I think you can do it without letting your arms get fatigued. Uh, anybody that's got a shoulder injury you should be thinking maybe that two-handed rod because mm-hmm. it's going to take pressure off of the single-handed casting techniques, right? Yep. So um, 
I'm not 100% convinced that they should be the first rod for anybody to go out and buy, but I think you grow into that, and, uh, and then you find applications. And like I say, the, the jetty walls are just a spectacular use of, uh, of a two-handed rod. You get so much more on the reach to mend lines over all of the rubble and the riprap on those walls. And on the back cast, you can cast, you know, beautifully clear of all those steep profile, um, you know, banks behind yep. you on a jetty yeah, wall as well. Yep. And so it's just, it's a great application. So, yeah, I'd encourage people to uh, to explore it, but maybe mm -hmm. it's their second outfit. Yeah. Well, Ken, um, let's, let's move into lines then. And why don't you... Tell us about the different lines you might use and, and walk us right on down through your leader and tip it, how you rig up. And there were a couple questions about knots that you use. So maybe you can just kind of roll through that whole thing there. Oh, my goodness. It's <laughs> <laughs> a five-hour show. Right. Make it fast. <laughs> right. Okay. My number one line that I like to work with is a, it's a full-line design. Um, and what I mean by that is, the head, the sinking head, is permanently attached to the running line. Um, I think that there's a lot of designs out there. I started off with the teeny lines. When Jim first came out with those for his steelhead adventures, I saw an application for me on the beaches. And now, of course, you have scientific anglers. Uh, they have their streamer express and Rio has their outbound and their striper sink tip designs. And, um, and I use the Rio lines a lot. I love them. But what I'm getting at is my primary line for most of the inshore fishing around California is some type of sinking tip type design. Um, and I prefer the sink tips that are longer from 26 to 30 feet in length. And the, the, the lines that I just named, the Streamer Express and the, the Real Striper or the Teeny TS uh, series, those all come within that range. Now, since we talked about a 7, 8, or a 9-way outfit for a saltwater outfit, um, basically the weight of the head on that line is 250 to 350 grains weight. And the 250 would match a 7-weight beautifully. The 350 would match an 8 or a 9-weight, depending on who the manufacturer of the rod was. But um, I, those are the two weight classes that I like to work with, the 250 in milder habitat and a 350 in, let's say, like wintertime or heavier hydraulics. I also have another line that I like to work with, um, and that's a traditional shooting head system. And, of course, the, the traditional shooting head system means that we could change out those heads, that we have one running line that will be coated or uncoated. And, you, you know, some people use amnesia. In fact, Jay still fishes with amnesia, 25-pound or 30-pound amnesia. <clears throat> and that allows him to make maximum distance casts but it allows him also to cut through current pretty quickly and, and get down to the, the feeding lane that he wants to, uh, you know, to maximize his retrieve in. And if you, you like that, that's great, but that particular running line has a lot of stretch to it. And you have to have the dexterity to, to feel the grab on that. 
And from my climbing days, I've had uh, some old hand injuries flare up. And in the last maybe eight years or so, I don't do as much with uncoated running lines anymore with my shooting head system. So I go to a intermediate sinking running line, um, like a 30,000th diameter running line. And again, Rio and uh, SA have it, and Airflow has them, and those are all great running lines uh, to work with. So the intermediate line has a little bit more tactile response for me, a little less stretch, and I can feel it better with cold and wet hands. And then working with the shooting head system, the two heads that I prefer to work with are a Type 4 and a Type 6. And those are ratings on inches per second, or when you look on a box, the IPS rating. And just for simple math, it'd be either like four inches per second or six inches per second on the drop. But basically what I'm saying is I'm giving myself a choice so I'm not fishing a line that's just going to drive down to the bottom of an estuary mud flat and anchor itself or, you know, bury itself into a sandbar on the beachhead and and uh, be feeding crabs instead of feeding fish. I still want a little bit of life in those lines. The one other line that people might want to consider is a full floating line. And those full floating lines I don't use as much because I don't do a lot of top water work out here in the, in the California region. But there's still times where you can, where you might want to go for a top water bite with white sea bass or striped bass or you might be back in an estuary, and you might have a shot at some salmon that are working um, some bait pooling on the surface. And then that's where, the, uh, like those outbound tapers by Rio is a, a great one for the, the floating lines, you know, something that's really going to deliver that, that fly through heavy wind and, you know, cross-cutting winds and just allow you to punch things out. So, um, but for me, personally, the floating line is, is my third option on most days. Now, going for the leader and the tippet, I try to keep it very, very simple. Um, the majority of the days that I'm out, I keep it basically under nine feet in length from the fly to the fly line. So my terminal rigging is nine feet or less for most saltwater endeavors out here. Um, if I'm talking about the beach itself, then it's probably six feet or less. I don't worry too much about tapers. Um, sometimes on the beaches it can be just simply uh, six feet of 10-pound test monofilament or 12-pound fluorocarbon or 8-pound fluoro, depending on, you know, what, what you're going to be throwing or how delicate you need to uh, make that presentation. But I don't think people need to go through a lot of gymnastics here uh, with bimini knots and class tippets and bite traces and all of that because, again, along the California inshore, the majority of our species just aren't, aren't going to be that abusive on the terminal tackle. Now, you go down into Mexico, Costa Rica, go over to Florida, or you get into uh, the Texas flats, and, and you have critters with teeth and choppers, and maybe they're bigger and more robust. And at that point, then you are looking at, you know, being a little bit more... Um, more diligent about building a terminal system. But I think California anglers could keep it real simple. After I said all of that, why don't you just make it super simple and just go buy yourself a tapered leader off the wall and, and just go, you know? And um, 
I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but I, I do that. I use a lot of striper tapers uh, because they turn over the flies so easy. And if you use a striper taper, you know that you've got basically your, your um, foundation terminal tackle set at five or six feet in length. And then you're just adding maybe two feet of tippet material, and, and, and you know what you're working with all day long. So that's just another good, uh, a good suggestion on something that I do often. Yeah, your, your books make that point uh, very clear, and I'm all in favor of a minimalist approach to, to leaders. Well, let's, let's take a quick break here, and when we return, Ken will be answering your questions about fly fishing California's estuaries. Lefty Cray, Dave Whitlock, Bob Clouser, Gary Borger, Jack Dennis, all of these and more fly fishing greats have been involved in the International Sportsman's Expositions over the past 30 years. Each of the five ISE events is the market's largest sportsman's event all year, featuring up to 600 exhibitors, hundreds of seminars, and special events, including ISE's own Best of the West Distance Casting Contest. Visit www.sportsexpos.com, that's sportsexpos.com, for seminar schedules and more information. Come meet the legends and those who soon may be at upcoming ISE events in Arizona and Utah. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Ken Hanley about fly fishing California's inshore. If you'd like to send a question to Ken, just go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, click on the link below the description of the show that says click here to ask Ken your most important question. We'll receive these promptly, and we're trying to answer as many questions as possible tonight. Well, Ken, uh, we're going to move on into the types of waters that uh, – we're experiencing. Tell us what an estuary is. Okay, the easiest way to think about that is that the estuary is the interface between the freshwater and saltwater world. Think that's the mixing ground for not just the water itself, but also the game fish. So uh, estuaries tend to be um, in a lot of protected environments. You know, there's a lot of flats and grass beds and little channels and river mouths. Um, estuaries are also then impacted by uh, built environment. And estuary is basically a harbor at that point. So when we're talking about estuaries, we're generally talking about waters that um, the salinity level isn't as extreme in an estuary as it is going to be out off of the coast, uh, which means that that then changes some of the game fish that can live in an estuary. Um, but also estuaries are nursery grounds. And I think that's the biggest tip to give people tonight. Estuaries are nursery grounds. It's places where game fish either feed on the young of other game fish or their own. Um, and they're also nursery grounds for a lot of the bivalves that are in the area. So they're a very, very rich environment food chain-wise but they're also an environment that has a lot of flux to it. So you have some game fish that might be home bodies, but the majority of the game fish in an estuary are transient. Does, that, does the degree of salinity impact the fish species that you're, you're going to be seeing? Yeah, I think it does. Um, I think if it gets a, a little too salty, uh, you don't see a lot of the critters coming in. You know, the, the, the super salty environments 
that's where you end up getting thorn sharks and, you know, stickleback bait fish and, you know, the, the hardy creatures that basically say, uh, hey, once uh, man leaves the planet, we're going to be the last things there with a bunch of ants. You know, they, they, they just refuse to go down no matter how bad the water quality goes. But um, if you get a, a good flushing of fresh water to come out, like at this time of year, uh, a lot of times what you end up getting at that point is you get the terrestrial food chain interfacing with the marine food chain. And, of course, that just brings in more predatory fish from the outside. So they're feeding heavily on shrimp, and they're feeding on small uh, salmon fry or alevins that are in the area, or they, they're feeding on crabs or, you know, worms. In fact, worms are, are a great thing for you to consider if you're going to be an estuary angler. Um, I know that on the East Coast, you know, the cinder worm hatch is a very famous time for people uh, going out and targeting uh, stripers at nighttime, for example. But um, out here on the West Coast, we also have hatches of worms as well. And those worms look everything from a small garden hackle, like the little guys in your backyard, to, uh, you know, to clam worms, which are like those big bristle cone worms um, on the East Coast as well. So, yeah, the, the salinity does impact quite a bit but especially it impacts the food chain. And I think that dictates what type of predatory fish come in um, and stay in on any given tide. Ken, then what, what kind of fish are we looking for? What, what kind of fish are we targeting in estuaries along the California coast? And I realize that may change from north to south. Yeah, it definitely does change from north to south. Uh, let's start south first. Uh, down in the, in the southern waters, one of the most gamely fish for you almost year-round in the estuary environment is spotted bay bass or spotted sand bass. I love them. Think largemouth bass, mm -hmm. only, you know, they're in the salt water. And when I say spotted, I'm talking like leopards don't have enough spots to look like these guys. They're spectacular. They've got these red werewolf eyes. They're kind of spooky when you catch them, but my God, they're, they're a great game fish. Um, so that's a species that only exists in the southern half of California. We don't even see them in central California. Um, from Hearst Castle south is where you're going to catch those things. And the farther you go south, the more prolific those fish become. Their cousins, the, uh, the barred sand bass, uh, are also a, a good example of a, a southern species. They're a little bit tougher to catch because they like deeper waters and they, they like colder waters at sometimes as well. So, um, you know, you, you do a little bit more work to catch them, but they are a little bit bigger game fish. So, um, and I suppose we could get into this a little bit later depending on the, the questions that um, folks have posted. But there's two good examples of species that you would get uh, the majority of the year, but only in, the, in what I call the bottom half of the state. In the top half of the state, when we're talking estuaries, we're talking about striped bass, we're talking about halibut, we're talking about salmon, um, but we're also talking about rockfish, and we may be talking about jack smelt as well and, and uh, perch. So, you know, there's a half a dozen species right there that, again, as the months revolve, 
uh, one species may dominate over another, but there's always more than one species available in an estuary. And that's what I like about it. It's a nice grab bag. You know, you can go in and, and uh, you, can, you can move around. You could walk on a mud flat hoping to catch some halibut. Nothing works there. You move over and you get along a jetty wall and pretty soon you're, you're uh, picking up stripers or smoothhound sharks or leopard sharks. Sharks are a big catch in the estuaries all along California. And uh, the two most prolific are the leopard shark and the smoothhound, the brown smoothhound. Now there is um, uh, the season for the, the salmon up north and the steelhead is still the fall. But is there um, uh, when does that start and end? And and is there a, a seasonal activity for the stripers as well? Yeah, there there is seasonal activity in the estuaries for the stripers and the salmon. No question about it. Um, and it's almost the same time. So, you know, the fall is really a, a good time to concentrate your efforts because that's the transition time for, for those fish to be moving in and out of the freshwater environs. Um, actually, salmon in the middle of summer are moving through estuaries as well. You know, they bulk up off the coast and then they, they move up into the estuaries and, and then finally up into the rivers and, and do their spawning. So um, summer, you can begin looking in the estuaries and seeing some of those uh, those transient fish, but definitely in the fall, that's when things really bulk up. Um, there's two times for the stripers where you could really look at uh, trying to get, you know, into the bigger numbers population-wise. Um, and the first one is in the springtime when they're coming out of the freshwater environment. Um, and, of course, we're talking out of the California Delta system and then coming down into the San Francisco Bay uh, complex and the San Pablo Bay complex. And in the springtime, you tend to get a lot of fish moving through fairly rapidly because they're, they're heading out towards the beaches in the summertime. And uh, what they're doing is they're bulking up out off the coast and they're feeding heavily off the coast before they go back up in early fall through the estuaries again to get up into their, their spawning spawning grounds. So I think the fall is a great time to be fishing estuaries up in Northern California. We know that estuaries are where the rivers come in. Does the Sacramento River Delta qualify as an estuary? Oh, it is, yeah. Uh -huh. it, it's one of the largest estuaries in the western U.S., uh, over a thousand miles of waterway. Now, for some folks, they, they consider it completely freshwater. Um, and they'd be wrong. There, there definitely is a salinity exchanges in that system. Um, of course, more on the western side of that delta than on the eastern side. But when you talk about a thousand miles of waterway, you know, there's a phenomenal amount of, of uh, water moving through that system. Anybody that comes out and fishes the delta will very quickly find out that tide affects everything in that delta just like it does in San Francisco Bay. And it gets back to all the reasons that, that, that we started the show, you know, access. Access for you, access for the game fish, access for bait fish. That's what it's all about. Okay. Well, tell us a little about how you decide to make a presentation and, and work your bait and also how you select uh, flies to represent baits that are appropriate for estuaries. Um, 
basically, Don, I try to take any environment that I'm going into and make it as small as possible. Uh, I do this on a lake or a river as well. But in the estuary, I want to take a look at things and say, how can I break that estuary down? Uh, where's the natural environment and where's the built environment? If I look at built environment, I know I'm looking at more of a vertical world for the fish than I am in a natural environment because the built, the built environment is going to have all of those walls that we've put in or posts and, uh, you know, pilings and bridges and maybe floating docks and the like, but it tends to be a vertical world. So that's one of the things that dictate how I present in a built environment. If I stay in that built environment, I also know that a lot of the food chain is based on a lot of the crustaceans that are around the built structure. And those crustaceans, I mean, everything from barnacles right on up to crabs and shrimp. And um, so I, I generally fish a lot of shrimp flies um, or crab flies and fairly dark crab flies when I'm fishing around uh, built structure. Sometimes I'll fish bait fish, but that depends on what I see moving in the water. Um, if I don't see diving birds, if I don't see flashes of bait or, or skipping and breezing bait, meaning that they're, they're leaving the water with a predator behind, um, then I usually stay on the, uh, the shrimp and the crab or even worms. So that's how I would start to approach that particular habitat. If I go out into the natural environment, then I'm looking mostly for things like uh, grass beds shell flats, mud flats, or a channel, or a river mouth. And each of those, I may make some slight, uh, slight variations, but you know what? When I'm fishing in estuaries, I almost always start with shrimp-type patterns because that's one of the dominant biomass that's in an estuary, that or worms. So shrimp and worms is a great way to go. Dan, can you give us a, a couple of names of flies? Not everybody has your books in front of them like we do, but uh, could you could you give some of your favorite flies for those? How about I make it? Worms? I'll make it so incredibly simple. People are going to have the duh factor. You know, they're, they're okay. all going to be pointing right now, going, "Well, duh." Yeah, okay, here we That's go. The duh factor or the dawn factor? <laughs> Okay. I'm not, not going to say anything. Yeah, yeah. You notice I'm trying to just move on. Yeah. <laughs> he laid that one on himself this time. Here we go. Simple as simple can get. Get a whole bunch of woolly buggers. Some are dark. Some are light. Some are thin. Some are fat. Some are long. Some are short. Go have a ball in an estuary. Some are weighted and some are unweighted. And I'm being serious now. It could be as simple as variations in color, size, or even texture, um, and certainly in weight, of just woolly buggers. They're hard to beat. I mean, let's face it. You and I may think we're fishing a shrimp pattern, but who the heck knows what the fish thinks it is. And so is it the movement in those? The, the, I, I think movement is everything. Yeah. I think, first right. of all, you've got to be in the zone, the right depth. Right. But then I think animation and puppeteering is everything at that point. So 
I'm, I'm not trying to beg off the question, Roger. I want to make it simple for all the listeners. They've probably got oodles and oodles of flies that would fit the food chain that we've just described for the estuary. Um, here's a great one that I like working for worms. Uh, it's the V-worm, the letter V for vernil. Uh, the V-worm was a design by Andy Burke that he uh, had created for largemouth bass fishing. And I remember he and I going out and testing that thing and laughing and talking about, you know, that the simplest designs do such amazing things. And one day out on the beach, I was looking at some worms that were ripped up in the surf. I thought, oh, my God, they look exactly like Andy's V-worm. Now, I always carry one of those in my box out on the beaches, for example. But they are a phenomenal pattern inside the estuary environment. Now, if you want to go more specific, you know, there's a trillion shrimp patterns that are out there right now. But I think the key is this. I try to choose shrimp patterns that are opaque in profile, that happen to be somewhat orange or brown or butterscotch in color scheme. And basically when I'm fishing shrimp patterns, I fish them slow and low, almost like a worm with one variation. And that is after I usually make a pull of about a couple of feet, slow, steady pull of a couple of feet, I'll move my rod tip in a sharp little upward motion right at the end, just like a shrimp popping up, that little carapace pops underneath the backside and the, the shrimp moves just like a crawdad does, and then it settles back down into the grass. And that's, that's a deadly technique for fishing a great deal of the estuary. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. And folks, uh, you know, of course, you know, if you get Ken's books, um, he's got a lot of the flies in there and shrimp patterns and so forth if you want to get more detail. But Absolutely, I, and my wife would be happy if you guys buy my flies. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, we've got to take a, a quick break here, and then we're going to come back and speed through um, beaches and bays here, and uh, we've got a lot to cover yet, so uh, let's take a break. Keeney's Fly Shop in Sacramento, California, features classes on all aspects of fly fishing. Keeney's Fly Shop has an extensive inventory and fly tying department and a friendly, experienced staff whose primary goal is your complete satisfaction. Among their many services, one can book private waters or take advantage of their international travel service. Visit their extensive website at www.keeney.com. That's K-I-E-N-E.com or call Keeney's Fly Shop at 1-800-400-0359. That's 1-800-400-0359. Are you listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio? And we're talking with Ken Hanley about fly fishing California's inshore. If you'd like to ask Ken a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and click on the link below the description of the show that says, Click here to ask Ken your most important question. We'll receive your questions immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Well, Ken, let's, uh, let's talk about beaches. Um, we've got beaches all the way up and down the coast. What's your approach and strategy when you walk up to a beach? Well, I'll tell you that one of the best things that you could do is, first of all, leave your fly tackle at home the first time you go out. And that sounds almost, uh, you know, ludicrous here on a fly fishing show to tell people to do that, but... 
I think you've got to go walk a beach, if possible, one day without any tackle because you're not forced to make a cast then. You're forced to watch things and you're forced to take notes. Um, and that's what I did. You know, I, I didn't have a lot of success early on in my career out in the salt because there was a, not much there in terms of, of educational materials. Few people were doing it and, and targeting that area. So the learning curve was pretty tough in the beginning. When I stopped thinking like an angler and I went back to the things that I did as a kid, I surfed and I dove. And I said, what do I know about the surf zone as a surfer? And I started rethinking what those wave structures were all about. And what do I know about that area as a free diver? And I started thinking about the pull, the current, the riptides, or uh, what's going on around scouring pools and the like. Anyway, what I'm trying to get across is that I think if people are going to go out to the beach for the first time, you need to do it in a way that you see as much as possible. So tip number one, try to go on the new or the full moon. Remember that talk about the extreme high and extreme low exchanges? If you could go on a minus tide day, and usually in the summertime, that's right around 5.30 or 6 in the morning if you're lucky. Sometimes it's 4.30 in the morning. But basically, in the summertime, if you can go right around dawn and get out on the beaches around a new or a full moon, you're going to have a lot of exposed habitat, and that's great. You're going to be able to see the holes and the troughs and the channels and the tapering points and the sandbars, and you'll get a feel for what's going to be flooded in the next three to four hours. It'll let you know how to start to approach that uh, that habitat. The once other you tip, see those, excuse me, Ken. Once you see those uh, components that that are going to be underwater as the tide comes in, how are you going to work those differently? Well, I think it's an access issue again. You know, how fast is that tide moving? Sometimes your hand is forced. You got to get it now because the water looks like it's moving pretty quick. So it, it's a kind of a crystal ball. You know, you're rolling the dice and you're saying, I think. If I move down the beach this way, 100 yards down, I'm going to have great access on those holes that I saw from the sand dunes. But that also means that I can't come back up the beach in the opposite direction and expect to see what I just left because it's flooded. So, again, that, that saying that it's a very fluid, dynamic environment, I can't underscore that enough. You can't fish everything that you see. You just have to pick the things you think you can control. And I think that that's an important statement. I'll forego some property that looks phenomenal if I think I cannot control my line once I make the cast. And I might go to another area that seems a little bit marginal, meaning that I'm only going to have it for a few minutes. But you know what? All I need is one cast to hook up with the fish if he's right there. So, And I'm not saying that as bragging rights. I'm just saying we all know that sometimes your best cast is the first one you make in any time you move into new habitat. So, uh, you well, know. Specifically, the, then, then, when you're talking a trough um, or a pool or foam lines, can you, can you tell us more specifically how you work those when you see those? Sure. Uh, let's take troughs. Troughs run almost parallel to the shore. 
you know, just like a feed trough. All, all the, uh, the farm animals come up and they stick their head in that trough and you've got a hundred of them shoulder to shoulder. So that, that's really sort of that, that horizontal world, isn't it? You know, you, you want to get into that trough and there's very few places in a trough that is going to be better than any other place in the trough. So you move a lot. You hit a trough, which basically is water that might be standing from one to four feet deep. That's my goal. I love to get into water depths of one to four feet because I know my lines can get down when they need to. I can get my tackle under control, make the retrieve, and then I can roll cast pickup and make another delivery before I get swept off the beach. Um, I try not to fish deeper than six-foot habitat because it's a timing issue. You can't make the cast, get under control, get all the way down, and get back before you get ripped off by the next, you know, breaker coming through. So when I'm in that trough, I'm making a cast or two, and then I'm sidestepping 10 to 20 feet, making another cast or two, and sidestepping again. Um, so that's one approach to that particular habitat. If I go into a pool, and a pool is just what it sounds like. It's a large sort of oval or disc-like um, environment. That's almost always next to a tapering point, by the way. So the tapering point creates that area where the, the uh, wash could come in and then scour against that high bank of a tapering point. And you get these scour pools. That's a little different. Then I could stay in that pool because it's a concentrated area and food gets pooled in that area for a little bit longer period of time than it does in the trough. And you've got an entry point or an exit point in that hole, a specific place where fish come in and go out. And I can concentrate my casts right out at the head of that pool. So, you know, and, and fish the edges of the pool. It's always about edges, guys. Fast to slow water, deep to shallow water, you know, fresh water to saline water, a cluttered water column to a clean water column. It's always about edges. And if I could fish the edges of the scour pool, that's where all those sand crabs and everything are getting scoured by the hydraulics and where bait fish are also coming in and being pushed in first before they end up towards the center of the pool. Ken, um, Paige Olson up in Wisconsin has inquired about species of fish. I wonder if you could mention some specific uh, examples maybe uh, that we're working on the beaches. Sure. Boy, Paige is coming from a long way, huh? Mm-hmm. That's great. She's a guide up there, actually. Oh, fantastic. So we know where she's coming on her off-season, yes, huh? Yes, indeed. Uh, well, we'll be talking mostly about uh, surf perch. We have a, a variety of them up and down the coast. We have at least a dozen of them that frequent the beach habitat. The most prolific on the bottom half of the state, again, kind of maybe from say, Santa Cruz South, or, or even better, from Hearst Castle South, um, is going to be the barred surf perch. Um, and that, just what it says, think of a, a perch or a crappie in the freshwater world. These are their cousins on steroids. These guys pull uh, much bigger than they should. They run anywhere from, say, a quarter of a pound to, to many pounds. Um, two or three pounds is a real trophy fish. Four pounds is probably near record fish. But they're beautiful. They're, they're like um, 
pulling on a, a dinner plate. You know, they're they're tall, they're compressed, and they're they're just a great fish. They're very prolific off of our coast, and they tend to be bottom feeders. They've got crushers halfway down their throat, so their primary food is the mole crab, the Pacific mole crab. Anybody that's out on the East Coast, by the way, you've also got a mole crab species that looks almost identical to ours on the West Coast. Kind of looks like a little cocktail olive. So instead of being flat like, you know, the cancer crab that we look at when a, a kid draws a picture of a crab, this is more like a, a, an olive rolling or tumbling in the surf. Um, almost that color sometimes, but uh, they could be anything from tan to, to gray to olive. Is that something that you can um, imitate with a fly? Oh, sure. Yeah, there's a lot of, of sand crab patterns that are being developed here. Um, and they're all basically versions of Bob Clouser's uh, Clouser minnow, just tied in a little bit more robust profile. Um, you know, again, trying to keep things simple here that um, when people come out along the coast, they'll see flies that uh, – look like the cat coughed them up. You go, holy cow, what is that? And the guy behind the counter says, uh, that's a Pacific mole crab. Not only that, that's a spawning specific uh, Pacific mole crab. <laughs> and it's great because it's got a little uh, orange or tuft on the back or something. But um, they're really not elaborate flies, guys. Um, the key to the, the surf zone patterns is they're usually tied in the round. So that means there's no necessarily top or bottom to the pattern. It looks the same no matter how it's tumbling through the surf, right? So the, the surf perch, the barred surf perch, dominates the southern part of the state. And then as you move from San Francisco north, you'll start to uh, see less of the barred surf perch and more of the red tail surf perch. Both of those species prefer open, sandy habitat. And, of course, that's the majority of what we have off the coast. But once you start moving off of that open sandy habitat, other perch species start to come into play, like striped perch and rubber lips or zebra and rainbow. And those perch tend to like to be around pilings or rock piles or shale reef structure. So you can change there. But again, they're still feeding on crabs and shrimp as well. So anyway, surf perch is probably what you're going to get for the most part. Okay, um, Ken, oh. I, I got to cut you off on the on the beach thing, and let's just talk about bays for just a few minutes before we okay. tie things up. So um, I know tie we're, things up. Yeah. <laughs> oh my <laughs> goodness. Hey, uh, so let's talk about bays and what what you know how you approach a bay, what you might need to, uh, differently on a bay than you would the, the beach or the sure. Other well, think about the bay being completely opposite of the estuary. Remember, the estuary was uh, interface between fresh and salt, and it was protected waters, tended to have a lot of shallow flats and things like that. The bay is the basically the, the outer coast. Bays tend to be deep water. They tend to have heavy current. They tend to have a lot of rock structure. They have a lot of kelp forests along our coast which you find nowhere else on the planet, by the way, other than the, the west coast, from Alaska down through northern Baja. So kelp forests are a unique habitat, and we love them. Um, so fishing the bay, you're going to be fishing much deeper water, and you're going to be fishing uh, 
quite a few different species of fish that like to be around, you know, jetty structures, but also around the forests, the kelp forests themselves. So we fish a lot of calico bass, white sea bass, um, the stripers again, salmon in that area, um, halibut down on the, uh, the shelf, um, and then rockfish, blues, blacks, olives, yellowtail rockfish, cabazone, greenling. I mean, guys, we could just have a list that just stretches for miles. It's a very rich environment. Um, but it's also the environment where I think this is, this is the class in, of environment that demands that nine weight. I think a seven weight is pretty undergunned if you go out there. An eight weight, depending on if it's a saltwater design or not, with a good, uh, you know, a good butt section on that blank where you can lean onto a, a fish. But the nine weight is, is perfect for this environment. And you're throwing a lot of bait fish at this point as well, too. So you're throwing bigger flies, heavier flies, bulkier flies, heavier lines. And, um, and I'll tell you what, it's wild, man. It is wild. How are you working these, some of the structure like the kelp forest? Do you, you, are you going to get your fish uh, tangled up in that stuff? How are you going to get them out? Well, first of all, how you get into the kelp forest, and it's probably in a boat, okay? We do have some foot access in Northern California off of some of the, the uh, rocky pinnacles, but I think for the most part the reality is people are going to need to rent boats or have friends with boats to get out and do much bay fishing um, because you do need to cover a lot of water. And one of the things about going in and fishing these, um, these kelp forests is having the ability to move that fish with your boat if you need to. But generally, we're not in the thick of the forest. We're out on the edges of the forest. And if you're out on those edges, then you're fishing a lot of current seams and you do a lot of parallel casting to the forest instead of directly into it. And, um, you know, I, I think that what we need to look at when we talk about fishing the bays is you need to get down in a depth range of somewhere between two feet under the surface to approximately 20 feet under the surface because that's the zone. That's where the majority of the game fish are that we are able to catch in California with the fly rods. And that's a, a tremendous zone to be in. Sometimes casting parallel to the, the forest, you can hit that 2 to 10 feet, no problem at all. But if you're going to go down to 20, you need to think about where that boat is drifting, where the current is taking you, or where the wind is pushing you. And sometimes you need to move a little bit farther off. Um, rarely, but at times we need to go into the forest at high tide, where a lot of the bait's been pushed deep into that forest, just like in an estuary, right? The higher the tide, more hours pushing bait, they go deeper into cover. So in there, we're rowing around instead of motoring around, and we're looking for potholes within the, the forest, kind of those windows where you could get in, anchor up, and then you could short-line nymph, literally short-line nymph, in a vertical world within that pothole. And it's amazing to see what creatures come out of nowhere and smash that fly. <laughs> well, those are some, some great, great tips, Ken. Let's, um, 
Let's see if we can roll through some of these locations for folks. And these can be very short answers from your, your perspective, Ken. Yeah. I know, yeah. I know it answer. might be impossible, but... Uh. <laughs> what have you missed at this show? <laughs> okay. okay. Best the place challenge to fish, is on. The best place to fish for striped bass. Oh, God. It's got to be the San Francisco area. It's the capital of the West Coast. It's got to be San Francisco... Um, the, the bay itself and right in the delta. Um, if you're going to go south, I wouldn't go much farther south than Santa Cruz um, or northern Monterey Bay. Okay, Ted in Virginia wants to know, he gets out to Sunnyvale several times a year, uh, that's in the Silicon Valley. He wonders where you'd recommend he go looking for surf zone fish. Oh man, he's just right over the hill. 40-minute drive over the top of uh, the hill into Santa Cruz, and he'll be right in the thick of things. Um, you know, Santa Cruz, Monterey Bay really has a lot of accessible days throughout the year, but definitely from spring through early fall, he'll be right in the, right in the best window and in an environment that has many, many game fish for him to choose and pick. Uh, Jay Johnson from Washington State wants to know the difference between North California coast versus Washington and Oregon. Oh, very simple. There? Yeah, very simple. Um, and I was just up in Oregon last weekend doing a show and, and talking about this with a, with a lot of folks at that show. Um, I think up in the, the Oregon and Washington areas, you should be fishing the back half of the tide more often than not because the front of the tide, you get too heavy a hydraulics, too much of a push. They tend to have steeper profiled beaches than we do down in southern, uh, in California, especially central and southern California. So I think the biggest exchange between, between the, the two regions is I would probably be fishing earlier in the tide cycle in my home waters, and I would fish later in the tide cycle up in the Pacific Northwest. Okay. Tom Marks in New York wants to know, in your experience, what's the most exciting surf zone fish, and uh, where's the best place he should go if he's out for a visit? Oh, my gosh. You know <laughs> what? That, that's almost dirty pool because I think, for me, the most exciting surf zone fish does not exist in California. It's down in Mexico. And that's? <laughs> oh, are we going to open up this can of worms? Just, just say the one word, <laughs> this can and we'll of move jumping on. beans. It's the chicken rooster. fish. It's the rooster fish. Yep. Next question. Oh, <laughs> how about in California? Uh, okay, in California, um, gosh, I think it'd be the striped bass for me. Uh, those stripers are just so doggone strong, and you know they—they're a proud catch. You—you you really have to work for them. They're constantly on the move. They feed heavily when they're in on the beach, so you have to make the cast now. You have to, you know, really be ready to present. Um, and it's usually done in an extremely low-light environment. You know, they're premier feeders at nighttime or right at pre-dawn. So it's a very short window, I think, for prime conditions with the fly rod. And, boy, I love going after that striped bass. Man, that is something else. Okay, one more here. Scott in San Diego wants to know a little bit about the bonefish down there, and can you cite for fish for them? Are there bonefish in San Diego? Yes, there are. Scotty, huh? what are you doing? We can't do this on the Internet. No, I'm Oh, teasing. we're not supposed to tell anybody? <laughs> I'm teasing. Um, well, I'll tell you what. I mean, it, I think we should talk about it because uh, 
one, they are a viable fishery there. Two, they're not a prolific fishery. So this is, this is a good one about conservation. Um, uh, you know, I'm not going to X marks the spot, but I will say that they are a flats-oriented species, and they tend to be in the back bay. Um, I don't know technically if they're a subspecies or not, but um, they don't grow like the, the bonefish in the Bahamas or out on Christmas Island. They tend to be a little bit deeper water running species, a surf zone or a flats oriented species, and they generally run about 9 to 14 inches in length, and they tend to be less than 2 pounds. So, um, and you know what? They are a native off of our coast. In fact, they used to range all the way up through San Francisco Bay. So they're a great little catch. You're going to have to go out and explore the back bays on your own there, Scott. But um, <laughs> definitely I would concentrate on uh, flats near uh, deep water channels. Well, Ken, unfortunately, we are out of time, and we have to wrap things up. <laughs> hey, we got more than three questions in tonight, and that was a <laughs> yeah. goal for me. <laughs> yeah. When we return, we'll be drawing for a copy of Ken's book, Fly Fishing the Pacific Inshore by Lions Press, and also a, for a three-year membership to the Federation of Fly Fishers. So stay tuned to see if you win. The Platte River Fly Shop in Casper, Wyoming, features a first-class website covering all aspects of fly fishing the tailwaters of the North Platte River including up-to-date local fishing reports, fly patterns, guide services, and online shopping for top-of-the-line gear for any travel destination. The Platte River Fly Shop provides a professional guide staff for the Blue Ribbon, Trophy, Gray Reef, and Miracle Mile sections of the North Platte River. Visit their extensive website at www.yotrout.com. That's W-Y-O-Trout.com or call the Platte River Fly Shop at 307-237-5997. That's 307-237-5997. From our global events calendar, we see there are some big doings coming up in Oregon. On Friday and Saturday, the 9th and 10th of March, the Northwest Fly Tire and Fly Fishing Expo will be held at the Lynn County Expo Center in Albany, Oregon. Over 150 fly tires are scheduled to demonstrate their skills in this, the largest fly tying exhibition in the Northwest. They have a full schedule of outstanding classes, including fly tying, fly casting, and techniques, all covering a range from beginner through export. Some of the classes have filled, so you want to get signed up soon. That's the Northwest Fly Tire and Fly Fishing Expo, March 9th and 10th. Go to the global events calendar, the link on the bottom of each page on our website, and look under Oregon for more information. And fly shops and clubs, you can list all your fly fishing related events on our global events calendar. It's free and you do it yourself. Go to the events calendar and get started. Get your events out there for everyone to see. Classes, demos, clinics, shows, schools, anything related to fly fishing. We'll be highlighting one event from the calendar on each of our shows. Well, I want uh, to ask one more favor of everybody. First of all, I want to thank you all for putting in so many questions tonight. We just couldn't get to them all, and we apologize for that. But i got to ask you for one more favor, and that's tonight before you leave. Take a minute and give us some feedback about the show. You can find the link on our homepage in the section on tonight's show that says, What did you think about this show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. 
Well, now it's time to give away a copy of Ken Hanley's book, Fly Fishing the Pacific Inshore by Lions Press, and this is um, definitely something book. you want to have <laughs> if you're going out there to fish. So yeah. let's pick a winner, and the winner is Joseph. Did I get it? Sloboda. No, you didn't get your own book. Ken. Oh, I didn't get it. Oh. <laughs> Hopefully, you, you know you know what's in there, Ken. Or did you did you have that ghost write? You know, did you have a ghost writer on that? Or what? oh yeah, <laughs> who was the winner? <laughs> Joseph Sloboda in Ohio. Joseph Sloboda right. in Ohio. Okay, so now we have to pick one more winner for the three-year membership to um, Federation of Fly Fishers, and that is going to be Zach Funkhauser. Zach Funkhauser in Iowa. Zach right. Funkhauser. Great. So congratulations to both of you, gentlemen. All right, nice going, going guys. Yeah. Yep, yep, you're going to enjoy, enjoy those both. That's quite a deal with the Federation membership and, and Ken's book, Fly Fishing in Pacific Inshore, is terrific. Yeah. Ken, we really appreciate you being with us tonight, and I, I learned a ton, I'll tell you. I've read your books, and I'm still learning like crazy. Um, you know, we didn't cover near what we need to, so I think we're going to have to think about having you back another time. And uh, I do want to get one point straight. You did say that Jay has amnesia, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, hey, now that's good. And of course, the problem is he's going to hear this now, and in a couple yes. of days, yes. I'm going to hear about it. So. Oh, yeah, you will. Oh, yeah, you will. <laughs> oh that's fantastic. Well, yeah. on our next broadcast, we'll be on March 7th, and that's going to be at 7 p.m. Mountain and 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on that show, we'll be interviewing Mark Bonham. And our topic for the show will be fly fishing the tailwaters of the North Platte. So quite a bit different than what we, where we came from tonight. But Mark has guided in that area for 20 years on the Gray Reef section of the North Platte in Wyoming. And, it's, uh, and he's one of the most knowledgeable authorities on that tailwater fishery. So listen in and learn the nuances of fly fishing this challenging water. We'd like to thank R.L. Winston Rod Company, the Federation of Fly Fishers, the International Sportsman's Expositions, Keeney's Fly Shop, and the Platte River Fly Shop for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. And feel free to explore the other areas of our site, like the events calendars and the directories. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.